spoken word. A taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present and future. Today in Spoken Word, I am speaking with Caroline Williamson. Caroline is a poet and editor. She was born in London. She moved to Melbourne with her Australian partner, working at Lonely Planet, Museum Victoria and Melbourne University Publishing. She also has a PhD in creative writing from Monash University and has just published her first collection of poetry, Time Machines, through Vagabond Press. Caroline, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tina. Caroline, I'm intrigued by the title of the collection, Time Machines, which is a phrase from one of the poems in the collection. The collection certainly deals with the past and the present. It's as if each poem is its own time machine, marking histories and movements of a life. One of the poems it does is, is La Busola. Would you like to read this poem and tell us what has been foremost in your mind as you have been composing poems like this over what is obviously a period of time? Sure. La Busola. Perched on a bar stool last night in La Busola, the compass, Pizza place that's been here at the scruffy end of Ligon Street for as long as I, migrant, can remember. 1991? Where once a group of elderly Italian men gathered in smoky conversation right here in the cavern of the side bar, which now has a stage, a sound system, a grand piano, a curtain, so we have a performance space. Where are the old men? In the cold ground of Faulkner Crematorium and Memorial Park, that's where, and we inherit their safe space, their home from home, adapted for a poetry reading. So, as I was saying, perched on a bar stool, Michael mumbled a summary of today's aesthetic creed. Against sincerity, against commitment, the structuring principle of good work is absurdity. Short pause for thought, and short was not enough. I made a show of recording his words in my phone, in among subject matter that came to mind during the reading. World War II, Crete, my father, your father. Poor Fanny Braun, who wasn't allowed to go to Rome and hold her dying lover in her strong arms. Women in World War II, knitting socks, making munitions, writing letters, raising children in terror every time anyone knocked on the door. Rugby. Remember how it wasn't possible to play it, being female, 1960s, and I'd have been a good wing, slight but fast. That was my father too, it seems to be an evening for thinking about my father. London Irish, little bloke, school long jump record. And something about ash falling out of the sky. Bushfires, blackened fragments of leaf and twig blown right across the bay to Blairgarry, black high tide mark on white sand. None of these are absurd. But subject matter would not, I think, define the absurdity or otherwise of a poem. My Crete poem sits there in its first draft, pencil, prose, incorrigibly sincere with a worrying streak of horrors, can you believe it, nostalgia. How can I shake this off? 
the dead hands of the romantics. Poor John Keats, his living hand and the grave waiting in the wings. Hanging around my neck, my cultural baggage, I want to be disinherited and rise up like a bubble into this weirdly clear blue city sky. And that would be so hard. Take clothes pegs, for example. I think I could write a poem about clothes pegs, and it would still be tainted with the I, I, I of iambic pentameter political authenticity. How we are losing clothes pegs whenever the dog raids their basket and removes one to crunch on the lawn. And how the ones we've got, plastic but solid and durable, except re the dog, cannot be found anymore in the supermarkets of this world, which offer only a brittle substitute, brightly coloured and the correct shape, a simulacrum of the real thing that cracks in the first weeks of use reduced to the bare minimum required to make a sale. See, I can feel a spasm of political commitment rising unstoppably from somewhere in my mind, and all we were talking about was clothes pegs. Also a poem, heartfelt, about how good it is on an autumn morning to be hanging out clothes in the sunny backyard of a house, of which I am, temporarily, an owner. What's next? Demolition and three cramped townhouses, six-storey block of tiny apartments some way down the track when building standards are altered to cater for the hundreds of thousands of refugees from Albert Park and St Kilda whose former homes are ten feet deep in the rising waters of Port Phillip Bay. Enjoy the sunshine while you can and the soft earth beneath your feet. Absurdity, the simplest and the most impossible thing. Wow. Well, um, time. I don't think when I was writing that, I was thinking about time. I was thinking about arguing with Michael Farrell about absurdity and the extent to which it can predominate in a poem. His work's magnificently absurd. I can't write like that. And this is like an examination of all my failures to be able to just cut those strings of meaning and history and commitment and write a different kind of verse. Although throughout the collection there is certainly a sense that you're playing with time and memory. Maybe, though I'm not sure playing is exactly the word. It's more the way that past times and future times penetrate the present so that when you write about the present it doesn't come fully alive without that sense of past and future infusing it. You were asking about the title of the book. Well, you know, I put the manuscript together and I think I was close to the deadline for Vagabond Press's open submissions and I thought, oh my God, I haven't got a title. I didn't think any of the titles of the poems would do. So I just leafed through the manuscript and found the piece I wrote about a book launch. It was Ella O'Keefe's book launch. It was just after one of the very long lockdowns and we hadn't seen each other. None of us had seen anyone for months. There we all were in the open air in Brunswick with cyclists going past and lorikeets in the trees. Fortunately a very good sound system because the birds were making so much noise. People kept arriving. They were walking across the grass as though they'd been dropped in by a time machine. People we hadn't seen for 
a year or two. There hadn't been those sorts of gatherings because when you end a lockdown, you then have to organise your poetry reading and by the time it got organised, it would be cancelled. I thought Time Machines, that speaks somehow to what the collection feels like. Well, one of the things that strikes me about the collection is your frequent use of long lines, which is no easy feat to pull off, giving the poems where this occurs a deep, reflective unfolding that, for me, colours the whole collection. One of my favourite poems in which you do this is the long poem Watching Narcissus, which I think is a tour de force in seven parts. Why don't we hear the last section of that poem and maybe you can tell us something about the way you compose your lines. I should say before I start that it was written when I still had a child at home, so it's a while ago, he's 27 now, I'd been reading a wonderful collection of essays by an American called Kathleen Fraser called Translating the Unspeakable. And she has an essay in that collection about parenting and writing poetry and about the way you need to restructure your writing to occupy whatever space you have. You can't wait for inspiration. You have to use the time that's there. So you have five minutes, you write something. And if it gets interrupted, tough. So over seven days, I wrote seven pieces without thinking in advance what each one was going to be about. And somehow I ended up in the National Gallery of Victoria with this painting of Narcissus. I should add that um, this painting is by Caravaggio, the Renaissance master. Which is an amazing painting. Yeah. A visiting old master in dim lights, roped and guarded from the touch of the living. The boy crouches over a pond, braced on both arms, one knee projecting above the dark surface. He bends to press his lips to something that isn't there, and his reflection dims and wavers. Only the white fold of his sleeve, that knee, those straining arms are clear. The arms, says the catalogue, form a circle, while his fingers just break the surface in a dazzle of light meeting nothing but water. The artist invested in a large mirror and laid it flat on the floor in semi-darkness in a studio stinking of turpentine with a high window, giving just enough angled light for the light and dark drama. And the boy contorted himself, held the pose till the muscles cramped in his arms, till that bent left leg went to sleep beneath him. Most of this is known, and we have the painting. Narcissus. Think of the flowers, not the stiff bundles in a florist's bucket, but the originals, their delicate stems, their brief blooming at the edge of a lake, the fragrance the same perhaps across millennia, their shivering reflections and the story told to the grandchildren in spring, the flower, the name, the picture at the back of your mind as you write. And the girl who watched the boy watching the water, she longed for him as he longed for his rippling image. She's somewhere outside the frame, forgetting to eat. Soon she'll have faded, the sounding skeleton inhabiting forever that one particular valley, the dry stream bed, the dusty cliffs, oleanders, the heat beating down, somewhere concealed among rocks a pool of dark water, cold, reflecting the sky. And as you read that poem, I can hear the undulating lines. So what draws you to the longer line? 
I think I'm a really naive poet, actually. I would love to feel I have that under conscious control. And I look at other people's work and I think I should really work on form and on pushing the limits in terms of what I've done up till now. And from time to time that does happen a little bit. But long lines just seem to be who, who I am as a poet most of the time. I mean, I could surprise you. I could come up with something completely different. But just at the moment, they aren't budging. You certainly write them well. I do have a few with shorter lines. It would be interesting to hear one of those poems with the remarkably shorter lines. (laughs) Okay, here's Shed, which I wrote quite some time ago at a time of, you could say, personal crisis. A patchwork of tin, rust red, peeling away from silver, faded light green and greys of several ages cut to fit the irregular space above a carport door. It's classic Australiana. You could move my neighbour's shed to the National Gallery. Found materials and the skill of cutting precisely to size and all the right tools and a life when nothing went to waste. To sit and look for an hour at these rusting panels, half obscured by the waving branches of the apricot tree. To sit with the telephone silenced and gusts of wind and rain on the windows, and not write, not find words for everything that's happened. Without this emptiness, this quiet watching, how can the words reform themselves around the unspeakable? Look how the shed sits square in the chaos of billowing green leaves, unmoved by the passing drama of horizontal rain. All without fuss absorbs the afternoon sun, the tin too hot for a human hand. It has a different musicality, doesn't it? It's sometimes a conscious effort to write those shorter pieces. Long seems to be, you know... Your forte. Yes. 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Welcome back. You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. I'm Tina Janukas and I'm talking with Caroline Williamson about her first collection of poetry, Time Machines, just published with Vagabond Press. Caroline, from the way a political consciousness is woven into the poems, the collection makes clear that activism has been a part of your life. And there's a particular poem, Merthyr Titfil, where a generational activism is on show, reaching back into your Welsh roots on your maternal side. It would be wonderful to hear this poem, but first, can you tell us how this generational activism informs your own activism and political awareness that I think is in the poems? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say I'm exactly a full-on political activist now, but certainly in my 20s and 30s. I think writing poetry and doing politics was competing for space in my life, along with earning a living and all that kind of thing. But I used to think that political activism is like a gene that sometimes skips a generation. So, you know, my parents were Labour voting people, but not really out there, whereas both of them had relatives. Um, My mother's father, my father's uncle, who in different ways were very committed to political action. And my grandfather in Wales was just my grandpa, you know. But I came to understand as an adult that I'd learnt things from him as a child. 
and wondered, you know, what that mechanism is, what a child picks up and what impact it has in the longer term. Merthyr Tidville. They're on the way out, the men who knew my grandfather, old men speaking among themselves in Welsh, who congregate in living rooms, sup tea, tell stories of strikes, poverty, coal dust. They check me out, princess lost in another country. I can never live up to this. He had vast hands, the skin loose from old bone and muscle, and blue scars like badges. The armchair whispered and boomed. My prissy London voice would tell school friends proudly, he went down the mine at eleven, met Lenin, became an MP. No one could match that. I was his darling, the first girl, curly-headed, He dried my hair, hurting my scalp with powerful fingers. I didn't dare complain and could never not belong to a union, never cross a picket line. It's written in tablets of stone. It's so long. The young men who knew him old are dying. I search for him in indexes, discover his angry words recorded verbatim in 1926. You will not get a permanent peace if you talk like you have been doing this afternoon. Old men lingering. The house sold, the papers in a library, the language lost in the next generation. We have his fading stories for sleepless children and laws about coal dust and sickness, the right to compensation and all those minds closed down. I love the way that poem reaches not only into the family history, but in a way deeper into the history of England itself Mm. and a history of union activism. I find that that brings out a certain consciousness in you that also plays out in other poems. And I'm thinking here of your poem, Surveillance, which is a poem about you as a younger woman, as an activist and as a feminist. I'd love to hear that poem. The question I have is, is there an influence there from your grandfather coming through and continuing that tradition of activism in a new way, in a new form, as a young woman? Well, I think the connections are really interesting because just reading that, like now this minute and the last line, all those mines closed down, that's, that's Margaret Thatcher closing down coal mines in the 1980s. So many communities destroyed and you know I don't think although it was already known the damage that coal burning coal does to the environment was known but it wasn't as prominent in our minds and the big miners strike in the mid-1980s in Britain was oh it's hard it's hard to describe the impact it had you know there were miners from Yorkshire and Wales with buckets at every railway station in London raising funds. People were putting them up in their houses. It was a huge, huge community um, resistance to what was going on, and it failed. But at around that time, I was working full-time for the campaign for nuclear disarmament in London, and the two things were kind of in parallel for us, not opposed at all. 
from our perspective now, we look back at the politics of coal and we have this divided mind, but it wasn't there in quite the same way. So, yes, they come from the same, that comes from the same time. And I do think that I learned things from my grandfather without knowing that I was learning them that went into my later political development. But it'd be hard to put a finger on what they were. Well, it'd be lovely to hear surveillance and especially the feminist element of the poem because the poem involves women, doesn't it? Yeah, women and men, though it starts with blokes, actually. But yes, I mean, the Greenham Common Peace Camp was another um, very, you know, at the same time as the miners' strike, it was one of these very significant interventions, you know, by relatively small numbers of women who were actually there, but a huge number who were involved in turning up from time to time, demonstrating, showing support. And I was part of a little group, one of many little groups that used to go out when they rang us up and told us that the American cruise missile convoys were on the roads of England, had come out of the base. Let's hear the poem. Surveillance. Phone tapping by the security services was so bloody obvious easily demonstrated. For example, three jokers somewhere up north, Scotland, Yorkshire, whose phones had been cutting out, created the illusion of a textbook subversive action, breaking into a nuclear base by means of a single phone call. Just ringing to tell you we fixed the time for Friday. Mate, aren't you forgetting? Exactly half past seven, getting dark, the second entrance, 50 metres north. Oh, mate, you just completely stuffed things up. I really don't think so. Click. And then the three of them appeared on the dot with their cameras and filmed the lines of police and soldiers laughing like drains. I write this down from memory 30 years later. Another time, another country. Telephone trees. Now, who remembers telephone trees? One call from a phone box not far from the peace camp. Cruz was out of the main gate, last seen heading east, and women would haul themselves out of bed all over southern England, drag on warm clothes, stumble to the pickup point, pile in to somebody's ancient car, trundled out of London, west towards Berkshire at one in the morning, the freeway almost empty, minor roads lit only by headlights, hedgerows ditches, pale clouds of yarrow, overhanging trees, a rabbit. Mostly that was it. The convoy had moved on. But once we saw their headlights coming, stopped, jumped out and stood like a chain of paper ladies across the road, our arms spread wide. A deep rumble of oversized trucks their powerful lights, and weren't they just belting along and failing to break? I was holding Jeanne's hand. We had a moment of imaginary sacrifice, our names to be remembered for generations, and then we got out of the way, a glimpse of khaki tarpaulin over the long missile. I wonder why they bothered to tap our phones. We were not the stuff of martyrs, but they kept it up. Mysterious silences... Unusual faults on the line. One time, the call came from the peace camp and I rang around my list of numbers and nobody answered. Not the woman cradling her colicky baby in an armchair right next to her phone. Not the couple who had an enormous brawl till 3am right next to their phone 
which was back in working order the following morning. We all knew these things were happening. Once in response, an action was organised with no phones, nothing in writing, word of mouth only, a place and time of arrival decided, and off we went. Boots, anoraks, chocolate, flasks of coffee, one pair of bolt cutters. Where did we park? I don't remember. Downhill among trees was one of the camps, a circle of tents, a fire. Newcomers, we arrived with our own agenda. Cut fence, pull down, and not a policeman in sight. All quiet at Greenham Common. The tallest of us hid the bolt cutters under her anorak, then snipped at the wire, and all of us chanted and tugged till the fence came away from the uprights clean and easy. But rolls of razor wire blocked the other side. No way were we getting in. Still, the fence down, one section after another. Then beyond the razor wire, soldiers, so young and no one in charge. One of them finds half bricks and hurls them in our general direction. Missed, says someone with satisfaction, at the precise moment that something collides with my skull, heavy, and I put my hand to my head and it comes away black with blood, all down my front. Rugby injury, I think, for a moment, hallucinating some beefy Ford being led off the pitch, scarlet to his knees. They gather round me, shine a torch. Look what you've done, shouts somebody, and the bricks stop flying. They steer me down to the camp. Firelight, rescue remedy, homeopathic drops of essences of flowers. Can't do any harm, I think, and take it like a good child. Then it's emergency at Reading Hospital, and some young doctor dressed up for a social engagement shaves the wound and sews it up, and off we go home to London. I rolled up a silk scarf and bound my head to hide the stitches at work, the comfortable, interesting job I would leave to work for the cause. I hoped when the hair grew back I'd have one white lock among the bread brown, batch of honour, no such luck. In those days, the phone used to ring all evening on and off. It never bothered me thinking of the tape recorder whizzing on another end of the line. Flood them with information. Make them understand that ordinary people care about the future, that the lonely subversive is a figment of their imaginations. That was what we thought. And also that the inevitable infiltrator beavering away in the next affinity group, at the next desk could do as much harm simply by their theoretical existence, encouraging a game of spot the undercover cop, creating suspicion among our friendships, as by the information they collected. Take my list of members' names and addresses. Do. Though even now I catch myself wondering, was it the super-competent organiser who cracked the best political jokes, or the lazy idiot who couldn't meet a deadline and put the wrong contact number on the demonstration leaflets. And I don't want any answers. Some of us got together on the other side of the world 30 years later. Super competence to a woman, man. Our expanding bodies, our adult children, our grey hair. We have seen each other at our best and worst. We went through so much. Have another red. Anyone for ice cream? Te Papa tomorrow. Amazing Maori art. 
Well, I think it's an amazing poem and certainly captures the activism of the period. And you're going on with that activism in writing that poem. Well, I'd like to think so. As I read through the collection, I very much have a sense of a life lived with its uh, challenges, joys and achievements and its social connections. What is the most challenging aspect in writing your life into poetry? Whoa, my God, Tina. I think, honestly, I think I'm still unrolling things that happened in childhood and adolescence. Recently, my teens and 20s have been very vivid. Um, Does it ever stop? I don't know. Sometimes things happen that are traumatic in some way. And for one reason or another, you cannot deal with it at the time or for a very long time afterwards. And then it all comes back. So maybe if I get another book out, you'll find a few answers to that question. But it's really hard, a really difficult question to answer. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks. I'm Tina Janukas, and you've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I've been talking with Caroline Williamson about her collection of poetry, Time Machines, published with Vagabond Press. Spoken Word broadcasts every Thursday, 9am to 9.30am on 855am or live stream on 3cr.org.au. You can also download the podcast. Caroline Williamson's book, Time Machines, is available from vagabondpress.net.